I want to start by telling you a story. Before Caroline and I moved here to Ontario with our family, we were living in Alberta for a couple of years. And the first thing we did when we moved to that small town in Alberta was we went looking for a church that we could attend, something that, we, that was really important to us, to find a place to fellowship with others. And we found one. It was a great community, really good people, you know, salt-of-the-earth type people. But something really strange happened to us when we were there. I'll never forget it. It happened one morning when a guest speaker had arrived in the town. He was some kind of, I think, traveling preacher that went from church to church, going around, speaking. And to be honest, I don't remember much of what he said at all. Probably the way it's going to be for me this morning. You're not going to remember much of what I say this morning. I hope that's not true, but I don't remember much of what he said at all. But at one point in his message, he said something that um, shocked me. It was something to the effect of this. I can't remember the exact numbers, but he said something to the effect of this. I'm so happy that I can announce to you this morning that it's been six years and five months and 10 days since I last sinned. Like, I was shell-shocked. I completely was taken off guard. I was theologically sucker-punched at that moment. What? I thought, what did I just hear? And I quietly leaned over to Caroline and I said, why did he just blow his streak? (laughs) Who talks about this stuff? I mean, he was doing so well, but who talks about things that way? Why do, who boasts about how pure and holy they are? I never did buy the idea, to be honest, that we can be pure and holy, perfectly pure and perfectly holy, sinless in this life. And for me, to be honest, it just boiled down to three simple things. It was scripture, the history of God's people, and my life. Let me tell you briefly what I mean. I don't think the Bible teaches that we can attain perfection in this life, sinless perfection. But I know that's a message for another time but I don't believe it teaches that. Instead, I would just encourage you to read the Bible cover to cover and let the chips fall where they might and ask yourself coming out of the, uh, after you've gone from Genesis to Revelation, ask yourself coming out of that, does scripture teach that kind of sinless perfectionism? Second, when I look at God's people, the people of God, again, cover to cover, whether it's the great saints of the Old Testament or those new believers and fledgling churches in the New Testament, as a whole, from cover to cover, people just never arrive. They're messy. They really are. They're a messy group of people. And there's always work to be done. And then third, I know myself too well to believe that I'm perfect. In fact, I thought to myself, you know, if I adopt this idea, I'm either going to live in denial or despair knowing who I am. I remember all the things I struggled with when I heard that preacher come to town and speak to us. I was a young father and a fairly new husband, and sometimes I was angry and irritable, and sometimes I struggled just like the rest of you with temptations, and I messed up, and I found myself, I was missing the mark, I was constantly falling short, period. That was me. And if it hadn't been for a few good people teaching us the kinds of things that Pastor Terry's been teaching us these last several weeks, I really, I don't know where I would be. 
This morning, we're going to wade into a really important truth, which is that God is holy. And before I do that, let me start with prayer. Father, you are completely holy. And in some ways, we feel a great distance between us and you. And yet, you not only invite us to come near, but you've made a way. You have come near to us. This morning, Father, as I preach, I do pray that whatever it is you want to sink into our hearts, that you'll give us understanding and wisdom. And for those pieces that fall short, just let them fall to the ground, as Terry sometimes says, let them go past us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to admit that I've had a really hard time putting this message together this morning, and not because it was difficult to understand, but it was more the realization that when you speak about God's holiness, you feel like you're handling something that's incredibly sacred and precious. The old writers used to talk about it like a fear of touching the ark. It's an Old Testament references. They'd fall back in holy dread. But there's that sense that when you talk about God's holiness, my sense anyway, is you feel almost like drawing back. This morning, rather than thinking about holiness as just another thing about God, what I want you to think about this morning when you think about holiness is all of God's character combined into one powerful personal presence. All of God's character, not a part of God's character. Because what best defines God as a whole is his holiness. Maybe this will help. Think of it like this. You need to paint a room. You go to Home Depot or Benjamin Moore and you pick up a can of paint. You tell them what color you want and what you get is a a base tint to begin with. It's white, just the base color. And then you have to add in other colors for richness and vibrancy. I want you to think about God's holiness as the white base for your can of paint. It's always there. It forms the essence of who God is. That's holiness, the very essence of who God is. Holiness is not just one attribute of God. Holiness just isn't part of who God is. God is holy. That's the very essence of who God is. It's what the prophet Isaiah said in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 when he encountered God in a vision. He gets this fleeting glimpse of God and his holiness, and, and he, and he um, shares that in, in, in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to read that for you. And as I do, I want you to try to imagine for a moment that you, like Isaiah, were given just a fleeting glimpse of God. How would you respond? Just think about that. Here's the passage. It was in the, king, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. They're like angel-type things. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then he said, I'm doomed. That's what he said. I'm doomed. It's all over. I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, and yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew with me, 
uh, flew, sorry, flew to me a burning coal that he'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and he said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And just notice a few things in that passage. First, the words of those attending God. These strange heavenly beings that we call seraphim, they're covering their faces in humility and awe. And they describe God three times. That means completeness, perfection, three times as holy. Holy, holy, holy. Second, the response of the prophet, which likely would have been our response. Oh man, I am, it's all over. I'm doomed. I can't even stand in the presence of this holy God. And then third, God makes a way through Isaiah, or to Isaiah, for his guilt to be done, dealt with and removed. And one of the seraphim flies in with a, with a coal that he's picked up with tongs on the altar and touches Isaiah's tongue and it purges him and removes the guilt. Now, I don't know if you can relate to the feelings that Isaiah shared, but I think we can. If we stood before our king and our maker, you would be overwhelmed by that presence. You just would be. The most common response of people when they encounter holiness in the Bible is to fall. They fall all the time. They fall on their face. Even when angels show up, they fall. So you can take my word for it. We'd fall. We'd be doomed. We'd feel doomed. Now, God's holiness is described in Scripture um, not as an idea. It's always as a force or a power. God's presence is found in things like fire and earthquakes and thunder and lightning. It's heard as a loud trumpet blast. You see smoke, thick smoke, and clouds, and deep darkness. So this kind of stuff isn't an idea, like a religious idea. It's a very personal, powerful presence. Not some kind of philosophical con um, concept. It's very personal. In The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith says, there are two false narratives, wrong ideas, lies, that people believe about God's holiness. This is the first one, that because God is holy, he primarily is an angry God. It's like God has an anger management issue. We're so imperfect. And God just looks at us and he goes, man, I'm mad at you all the time because you're so inept. You're so unholy. I just want, it's like God just wants to, you feel like he just wants to drop the hammer on us all the time. But over the course of the last two years of, of ministry for me, or for two decades of ministry, I have noticed that a lot of people do struggle with this. They really struggle with beating themselves up. I've met so many people that um, think of God as someone who's on their side when they behave well and believe the right things, but he's just waiting for, to punish them if they get things wrong. It's a common and unfortunate belief. It's like, it's great news when we hear of a wayward son returning to the father in a parable like the prodigal son. He's welcomed home. The father says, kill the fattened calf. My son has returned. Let's throw a party. He was dead, but now he's alive. But the truth is that when we slink up that long and winding road to the same father, full of shame and regret, we usually don't feel like God is ready to celebrate. We sense disappointment and we expect punishment, consequences, and we long for a way to earn our way back to the Father. 
So that's the first false narrative that Smith's name, Smith names when it comes to God's holiness, that God is primarily angry. He's wrathful. He's watching us, watching to see if we fail and fall, and he's ready to punish us when we do. The second wrong belief is actually the, it's the exact opposite. There's a lie that people believe that God really doesn't care about your sin. He's just busy with other things. And your sin really doesn't matter that much to him. So why are you getting so worked up about it? The idea here is that God is just generally a nice God. And the things that we get worried about and anxious about, about our failings, that's not, that's not God's issue. That's really our issue. The uh, Canadian author and pastor, Mark Buchanan, has a really colorful way of, of describing this. He says this, It's as if God putters around in his garden, smiling benignly, waves now and then, and mostly spends a lot of time in his room doing puzzles. That's the kind of God. But both of those pictures are dead wrong. They describe gods of our own making, not the God we find in Scripture. The danger with narratives, all narratives about God, is that we can easily fall into the mistake of creating a God that we'd prefer, creating a God that fits better with who we are, with our background, our culture, our expectations. Um, some of you might know that Thomas Jefferson, who was the uh, third president of the U.S., he provides a perfect example of this. If you go to the Smithsonian National uh, Museum of American History, in the National Museum of American History, there's a Bible on display there, a red leather Bible, and it's called the Jefferson Bible. It's an exact copy of one that Jefferson had created that keep the original kind of in the archives. He was one of the founding fathers, as you probably know, of the United States. And in the early 1800s, what Jefferson did, armed with a razor and glue, was he edited the Bible. He tried to extract the pure teachings of Jesus, leaving the rest which he considered nonsense or dung behind. And the result he ended up with were 46 pages of teachings, mostly drawn from about 10% of the four Gospels. Now, Jefferson was a child of his age. He was affected by his background and culture. He was a, a child of the scientific revolution. So when he distilled down Jesus' teachings, you can guess about what some of the things were that he left out. He left out all of Jesus' miraculous works, including his crucifixion, his deity, and his resurrection. Jefferson, I think, is an example of what happens to us when we decide we're going to customize God to create a God that better fits with our background or our ideology or our personal opinions. But why? Why do we do that? Sky Jathani suggests it's a way for us to stay in control. This is what he says. We want to remake God to look more like ourselves, he says. And the reason is simple. If God thinks like me and looks like me, if he lives like me and votes like me, then I have nothing to be afraid of because God is just like me. Now, I understand the temptation, and I wonder, for me, for us, how much are we affected by our own culture and background? But there is a huge danger in doing this, in customizing God, because if you arbitrarily edit the Bible, for example, and rip it from its history and context to suit your purposes, you lose something. You lose something incredibly vital to the conversation. So what I wanna do now is I wanna look at what is the alternative then to the angry, howling, raging God 
and the God who's puttering around in his garden and making puzzles in his room. Like, what is the biblical alternative to those two ideas? In a deeper study, I think, of Scripture, it'll reveal at least three things about God that will help us develop a more balanced picture of the God of, God, of, the God of Scripture. So, first thing, God's wrath is not like human anger. I want to make an important point about God's anger first. God is not like us. God is perfect and holy. And God's wrath is not like our anger. God's anger is often, or human anger, sorry, is often, it's spontaneous. It can be irrational, even petty. We can fly off the handle. Like when someone just boils over emotionally and loses control. But God's wrath is not described like that. God's wrath, actually, in his anger is always slow. It's always slow and it's always controlled. And it's always carefully measured. And it's always meant to restore, not to harm. So in the Gospels, I mean, the truth is, Jesus doesn't hesitate to speak about God's wrath. Maybe you do or don't know that. Jesus, meek and mild, speaks a fair bit about wrath and condemnation. Here's an example. Jesus speaking, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. But here's the thing. When we talk about the wrath of God, this is not some kind of unpredictable feeling-based thing. It's wise, it's considered, it's meant to bring goodness and wellness and wholeness. That's what we're talking about. Uh, The author I referred to before, Mark Buchanan, puts it this way, God's anger is not just irritability. It's, It's distillation of his justice and his hatred for evil. It's what, we would, it's what we would want or even demand from a good God. In The Good and Beautiful God, uh, Smith reminds us that the wrath of God is mindful, objective, rational. It's usually an act of love. It's not indecisive. God is not indecisive when he comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to evil and the things that harm his people. So that's the first point. The wrath of God is not like human wrath, which is so often for humans reckless and reactive and irrational. The second thing is that God's wrath is actually an extension of God's holiness and love. And let me tell you what I mean here. God's wrath has been understood always in relationship to his holiness and his love. The vast majority of the time in the Bible when we talk about God's wrath, the wrath is a result of our choices. It's a result of our mistakes. And those things that come are not meant to destroy us. Now, the truth is, you know that God has given us great freedom. He respects us so much that he'll respect if we push him away and try to do things on our own. But remember, God's intention was always for you to flourish and not to perish. In fact, that's the most basic sort of fundamental stance of God towards his children. Remember John 3:16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And yet, for those people who reject God and his love, there is a natural order to things. If we reject and we rebel against God, we will struggle. Even the consequences we'll experience, in a sense, represent the wrath of God. So God's wrath isn't always 
punitive, sometimes it's consequential. Even though God's attitude for us remains that he loves us. So in a very real way, the natural consequences that you and I experience from sin are experienced as part of God's wrath. God has set up an order in life, and because he loves us, the emptiness that we find in life without him is often the only way that people will turn and come home like the prodigal son, come to their right minds and go back to the father. And then third and finally, when I think about a biblical portrait of God, let me me just ask you this. Do any of us really want to live in a universe serving a God who doesn't care about sin or evil, who's powerless to do anything about that? I find the idea of a God who doesn't care about evil and justice and fairness, I find that abhorrent. God's wrath is a necessary reaction by God towards evil. That's the holiness of God. Would a God who didn't care about evil be a good and beautiful God? All of us long for fairness. We do. We long for justice. Sometimes we don't see it on this side of the grave, but we long for it. And we can't get away, I don't think, from that longing. I think it's part of what makes us human. None of us want to live in a universe where there is no justice, where there is no right and wrong, where there's a God that's just indifferent to moral evil. A God who doesn't care about evil would be a weak and imperfect God. Smith summarizes it well in in his um, book, The Good and Beautiful God, by saying this, being soft on sin is not living, or sorry, loving, because sin destroys. I want a God who hates anything that hurts me, Hate is a strong word, but a good one. Because the true God not only hates what destroys me, but has also taken steps to destroy my destroyer, I love him. And because this God destroyed sin by making the supreme sacrifice himself, taking all the guilt and pain and suffering of my sin upon himself, I love him with an everlasting love. Almost 20 years ago, um, some of you probably remember when C.S. Lewis's famous children's Children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was made into a a film. In it, four children walk into this incredible place called Narnia uh, through a wardrobe in their uncle's home. And the book is really a story of their adventures in Narnia. At one point in the story, three of the four kids go to the home of the beavers, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver promise to take the kids to go see the great king, Aslan. Is he a man? One of the kids asks, Aslan, a man, Mr. Beaver said. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood. He's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, one of the kids replied. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver replied said anything about safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Here's the thing. He's the king, sorry, I tell you. I think for all of us, the good and holy God we encounter in scripture is a consuming fire. He's far too holy and just to be just kept at arm's length and safe. But he inspires, I think, for us worship and he inspires awe. 
He alone has the power to change our lives, to console us in our grief and in our suffering, and to shake us from complacency. And he gives grace to each of us so we can grow as, we, as his beloved children. That's the kind of God that we encounter in Scripture. So let me recap. Here's, before I go on to the application, I just want to share with you in a nutshell, here's what I think um, about God's holiness this morning. First, God is holy. It's the very essence of who he is. There are false beliefs about God, especially his relationship to sin. False narrative number one, God has an anger management problem. False narrative number two, God really doesn't care about your sins. Jesus' narrative, what's taught in a more balanced way in Scripture about love and wrath, is that God's wrath isn't like human wrath or anger. It's different. It's actually an extension of his holiness and his love. Because a God who doesn't care about justice and fairness is not, I don't think, good and beautiful. I want to close by just talking about the application. Every week in this series, Terry's talked about a soul training activity, a spiritual exercise. The one that um, I'm going to look at this morning is margin. And margin actually, it's like that white space, right, around your page. Margin is room. Margin, um, it remains when everything isn't used up. Think of it that way. So we see it in different places in life. Financially, margin looks like having a little bit of unspent money at the end of a month. And physically, margin's like having energy left at the end of the day. But I want to think about spiritually. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Excuse me. Spiritually, margin's like having room to invite God in. It's having space in your life for God. It's not crowding God out because of neglect or busyness or poor planning. So how do you create margin in your day? Okay, probably the simplest way is to start saying no. That's probably the simplest way. It's like saying no to things like, I think I'll just binge watch another Netflix series. Or it's like saying no to staying up so late you're exhausted the next day. Or it's like saying no to things that are just going to get in the way, like another committee or another commitment. So, and there is a connection between margin and holiness, because as you create space in your life for God, you are less at risk of being burned out, and you begin to experience things like rest and peace and wholeness. Creating, mar- creating margin helps you to grow in holiness. Margin can help you return balance to your soul. So wrapping up, here are three quick suggestions for how you can create more margin in your life. And I'd like you to think about trying one of these this week, okay? Three simple suggestions for creating margin in your life. One, create space for God. Doesn't matter how long, even just 10 minutes in the morning or in the evening, if you're an evening person, just sit there in God's presence. 10 minutes, simple suggestion. Very difficult for some people, I will tell you. Try it, though. Just give God 10 minutes a day and sit in his presence without coming to, rushing to him with all kinds of requests. Just sit in God's presence. Number two, limit your TV time or your time on social media. Just set a limit for how much time you want to spend in front of the TV or in front of your computer screen. 
and use the time that you would have spent there to build relationships with other people, to grow in your relationship with God, or just get the rest you need. And then three, and this is kind of a catch-all, but say no. Learn how to say no. When you say yes to everything, you become overcommitted. So start learning how to say no. Say no to the right things and yes to the right things so you can live a more complete and balanced life. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for showing us even a passing glimpse of your, your holiness, your glory, how incredible you are. Father, as we go out back to our houses and back to our places of work this week, I do pray you'll remind us on a regular basis that your fundamental stance towards us is one of invitation and love. And you want us, you want us, you long for us to come home. But Father, help us to take responsibility too for our lives before you and to learn to grow in Christ-likeness. And give us wisdom with that, we pray in Jesus' name.